Chapter 3 of The Queen of Appalachia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Felicia Wang. The Queen of Appalachia by Joe H. Borders. Chapter 3. Paul and the Confidence Gang It was Paul's first visit to the great metropolis, and he was a veritable stranger. He was some pumpkins in Princeton, but in New York a very small potato to use his own homely simile. Although a total stranger, he brought with him letters of introduction to several well-known mercantile houses, and a letter of credit to the National Park Bank. The first evening, after an early dinner, he emerged from his hotel for a stroll and to take in the town. Not knowing the principal streets, he just swept into the current and swam with the tide. Being from a small country town, his costume was anything but up-to-date, and he was easily distinguished from the city chap and as readily spotted by the bunco steerer. He was making his way down a crowded thoroughfare, a brilliantly lighted street which he afterwards learned was the Bowery, when he was accosted by a clerical-looking gentleman who made himself so pleasant and agreeable that Paul was only too glad of a chance to make some inquiries, to all of which he received courteous replies. His idea of Eastern manners was not complimentary, to say the least. He was told that the New Yorker was a stiff-necked aristocrat who would rather snub you than treat you civilly. Hence, he was surprised to find in his first chance acquaintance a gentleman in every sense of the word. Here he found a man who was undoubtedly, from his appearance and bearing, a rich man, probably a merchant or a banker, one who not only treated him kindly, but seemed anxious to extend favors. Like myself, you are looking at the town by gaslight, said the stranger. Paul had paused for a moment on the edge of the sidewalk, where he had been pushed by the surging crowd, intently watching the coming and going of the elevated trains overhead. He was not a little surprised that such a polished-looking gentleman should address him. I was watching those cars, yes, having nothing else to do, answered Paul. I started out to see the sights. Where are you stopping? Paul did not stop to think that such a question from a stranger was out of the ordinary, and he replied instantly. At the Astor House, repeated the stranger. That's where I hang out. When did you arrive? Today, I see. Well, New York is a great city. Nothing like it in this or any other country. There are a few other good-sized towns, but there is but one New York. I presume you are here often, inquired the stranger in his suave manner that caught Paul. Oh, no, this is my first trip, quickly answered Paul. You see, he continued, we have been buying our supplies in Cincinnati and other nearby towns, but 
we concluded to try New York. Sensible idea, said the clerical-looking gentleman. New York is the great center of commerce. Fumbling in his pocket, I thought I had a card. My name is Cooper, and I hail from Philadelphia. What town are you from? Princeton. Thornton. Aha. I see. Thornton and Son. General store, I presume? Yes, sir. We handle everything. Have to carry a general line in our country. Very glad to know you, Mr. Thornton, and hope to see more of you. By the way, looking at his watch, I have an engagement at nine o'clock. I will see you later. Good evening. Goodbye, Mr. Cooper. I will extend my promenade a few blocks further and return to the hotel. That is a nice fellow. Glad I met him. He may be of use to me, mused Paul as he continued his walk down the Bowery. Arriving at the next corner, he was startled by someone slapping him familiarly on the back. Hello, Thornton. When did you get here? said a smooth-faced young man, shaking Paul's hand and smiling pleasantly as though he was delighted to meet him. I... I know I have met you somewhere, but honestly, spoke up Paul, trying to figure him out, I can't for the life of me recall your name. Norton. Norton Bookkeeper for Shiletto & Co. I've seen you hundreds of times in Cincinnati. When did you come, and where are you going now? He spoke offhand, but rapidly. Let's go in and have a stein. Carrying Paul off to a saloon on the opposite corner, Paul went along, thoroughly satisfied that his companion was Shiletto's head bookkeeper, but took a cigar instead of beer. He didn't indulge. I was just making for a theater, Thornton. Won't you go along? I don't care if I do, Paul replied. I want to see everything worth looking at. That's my ticket, interrupted Norton. Life is too short to miss the enjoyments that are within reach, I say. Thornton, suppose we go to a variety theater. There's one over the next block. Lots of dancing and scores of pretty girls, so I've been told. I have never visited one of these places, but a variety performance is on my program this trip, and I am going to take it in. It's too late for the opera, anyway. Ah, there it is, right across the street. Looking up, Paul saw a theatrical-looking building, the entrance brilliantly lighted, and a band playing on the balcony overhead. They crossed over, and his newly found acquaintance took his turn with the waiting crowd for the box office. A box? repeated the ticket vendor. Which floor? Balcony? Two dollars, please. Here, Jim. Jim. Show these gentlemen to box F, balcony. See, they are made comfortable. I say, Jim, remember, they are not hayseeds. Following his remark with a wink which Paul did not fail to observe. When they were comfortably located, Paul asked Norton if he understood hayseedology. I am fixed for any emergency, he replied, his hand on his hip pocket. But we are not looking for trouble, Norton, so let us be careful, Paul said in a whisper. They were hardly seated when a couple of painted damsels came trooping in. Their costumes, as Paul afterward described them, would not have been sufficient to flag a handcar. The young lady who undertook to entertain Paul was rather modest in her demeanor, but 
as he was ignorant of the arts of the wine-ruined fraternity, Paul did not know that her demureness was but the acting of a part. The gay deceiver coquettishly dropped appreciative remarks concerning Paul's gold trinkets, his watch-chain, charm, studs, etc., and, having examined all his personal adornments, she glanced at the foreign hand around his collar, admiring it with much gusto. She had made one just like it for her brother out west, sent it to him for a Christmas present. Apparently, they were becoming excellent friends. Her lovely arm was carelessly resting on Paul's shoulder, and the young lady no doubt reasoned that she could cash the opportunity for a goodly sum. Paul's blushes, which his girl companion took for rapture in his bashfulness, were for shame for the girl at his side. He could not understand how any lady could be induced to appear before a gentleman in such a costume. Another thing, her familiarity was amazing to innocent Paul. He smiled, not because her presence was pleasing to him, but at her audacity and the freedom which she displayed in entertaining him. He was pondering over these facts when he happened to glance at Norton, and his blushes became deeper. On Norton's knee, with her arms wound around his neck, was a hard-looking character, the opposite in appearance of the woman by Paul's side, and he seemed enchanted. Paul was shocked and, for the first time, realized the character of the place. His first thought was a hasty retreat, but upon further reflection, he concluded not to mar the pleasure which his friend was apparently enjoying. While his thoughts were molding into this decision, Norton's girl touched an electric button which summoned a member of the White Apron fraternity, who almost immediately looked in upon them. Champagne in four, she yelled at him. He departed and the couple resumed their tete-a-tete. Five minutes later, the attendant brought in an uncorked bottle and four wine glasses. How much? inquired Norton of the waiter. Ten dollars. Ten dollars, screamed Norton. What do you take me for? Here is the printed list of prices, coolly replied the waiter, pointing to a placard on the wall. I guess you're in for it, old man, said Paul, who was examining the price list. Pay the man, pleaded the young lady, addressing Norton. That is a usual price. Everybody pays the same. Give him the money and let us fill the glasses again and have a good time. No, I will never pay such an outrageous price. It is nothing but a hold-up, said Norton, slapping his fist against the wall to emphasize his refusal. Will you pay or shall I call a policeman? roughly asked the waiter. I will pay it, Norton, spoke up Paul, going after his wallet and producing a roll of bills. You will do nothing of the kind, Thornton. Let him bring on the police. They can't play any bunco games on me. The waiter left the box and Norton subsided. Paul, however, was ill at ease and advised his friend to pay the bill, but his advice was refused. I am going to hunt him up and settle the difficulty. At last, thought Paul, and he started out. Norton called after him and finally overtook him in the hallway. There they are, said the waiter, arriving on the scene with a blue coat, pointing towards Paul and Norton. 
Come along with me, gentlemen, said the policeman. No arguments, but follow me. Here, waiter, cried Paul. Off with the bill. Too late, young man, he replied. You can settle with the chief. My friend, said Norton, addressing the policeman, this young man is not guilty of any charge in connection with this affair. He pleaded with me at the start to avoid a difficulty and, even then, offered to pay my bill. I am willing to go to the station and propose to fight this thing out to a finish, but, my friend, here being innocent, I don't want him dragged off to the police station on my account. That's right, spoke up the waiter. The young man oughtn't to be held. He'd done nothing out of the way and acted the part of a gentleman. Very well, sir, said the blue coat, addressing Paul. Stand aside. Are you ready? Turning to Norton. One moment and I will go with you, replied Norton. I want to speak with my friend before leaving him alone in this hellhole. Taking Paul aside, he told him he would probably have to give bond for his appearance tomorrow, and, as he did not want to let his friends know about his little seance, he would put up a cash bond. I find I am short, he continued, and if you will loan me a couple hundred, I will replace it tomorrow. Why, certainly, Paul interrupted, fishing out the sum desired. When you get through with the chief, come over to the Astor House. I will wait you there. All right, old boy, I'll meet you there at eleven o'clock. So, goodbye. Paula started to follow Norton downstairs when a detaining hand pulled him back and, turning around, he was face to face with his girl companion of the box. You are not going. It is early. Come back to our box, she pleaded. I hope you will excuse me, replied Paul. Really, I do not care to stay longer. And, tearing himself away from her, he made his escape, only to fall into the arms of the waiter. Since I helped you out of a most serious difficulty, young man, the boss thinks you ought to pay for that bottle of champagne. You know it was for all of you. Very well, interrupted Paul. Here's the price. Now, let me depart in peace. End of chapter 3 This recording is by Felicia Wang.